Well, we have just celebrated a, the achievement of the cross last Sunday, and we heard great messages throughout the week, uh, applications of the cross, and one of the songs that the team members sang was, Keep Looking at the Cross, and that that's, fits very well with what Paul is going to teach us here in this, this section, uh, how important it is for us to keep looking at the cross it forms a pattern. It, it, it has a shape that we ought to conform ourselves to and make our life like a cross. There's a technical word for it, cruciform. Uh, it's just a word that means something that looks like a cross, and that's really what our, our lives as Christians should look like. They should look like the humility that the cross pictures and projects. Paul's arguing here, again, along these lines of how important it is for leaders to be a part of the formation of humility in congregations and our role as members of a congregation to move our hearts towards the shape of a cross. And the application obviously comes from the teaching of Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23 to 24, Jesus said, If any would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's the wisdom of God, that we lose our life and it's given to us through Christ. The act of losing our life is a humbling, a denying of ourself. And Paul is expressing this as the wisdom of God. It's the power of God as seen in the cross. The question that we were with last time we looked at this book of Corinthians was whether or not we see it. Are you able to see this as the wisdom of God? It takes spiritual eyes to to see it and believe it. It takes born-again hearts to understand it. But how does this relate to the theme of divisiveness? And that's what this four-chapter block is about. He's, he's, He's talking about divisiveness and how the cross is an answer for that. Well, the self abasing wisdom of the cross is the answer for problems of divisiveness and interpersonal conflict. Humility. I don't know how you are with camping and making and building fires, but I know that um, if you want to put out a fire, one of the best ways is to pull things apart, pull some of the fuel apart, and take it away from the, from the, the flames. And that is kind of like a picture here of, of what, what requires us in self-abasement When we're in the midst of conflict and fire, we have to pull ourselves away from. We have to humble ourselves and not add to the fire. And there's a principle that's found in the cross here of denying ourselves the opportunity and the right that we think we have to to be right. And so the cross is a principle for us, and it has application for all kinds of conflict that we deal with. And Paul's, yes, he's talking about church conflict, but how many of us have conflict in our daily lives? Even as, a, as married people, do we not at times have conflict with our spouses? 
we would be lying if we said we never had conflict with our spouses. But how do we resolve some of that? Some of it requires that we take the shape of the cross, that we humble ourselves, that we take ourselves out of the conflict, and we work towards unity. And so, Paul here is saying it's important for us in this, in this awareness of the shape of the cross that we deny ourselves, that we pick it up, that we apply the truths of humility. In fact, humility is an identifying mark of a Christian. And to follow Christ, to follow Him, to really follow Him, requires that we will become shaped by the humility of the cross. And a truly spiritual person, one who is truly marked by the Holy Spirit, is going to become an instrument of unity in the church rather than an instrument of division in the church. So, Paul's working through this this argument in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. He says to us that divisive people actually display marks of unacceptable spiritual immaturity. Divisive people display marks of unacceptable spiritual immaturity. I'll just read it again and see what he says here. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you are still the flesh. For, while there is je- for where there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, this paragraph has caused a lot of confusion throughout church history. And I don't want to add more confusion to it this morning for you. I hope that uh, I'm able to communicate clearly what he's saying here. But we need to be very careful about what he actually says and not force interpretations that we've heard through the years on this passage. Paul is actually being very ironic here. He's, he's, he's concerned that while the Corinthian people who are believers in Christ are thinking of themselves as spiritual, they're acting in ways in which it shows that they're not as spiritual as they think. They're divided. And Paul is actually speaking contrary to facts. It's it's like he's saying, look, Corinthians, you have the Spirit, but I can't tell whether you really have the Spirit because of the way you're acting. Are you truly Christians? He knows that they are. And so, he's speaking a bit ironic here. And he acknowledges that they are believers because when we were in chapter 2, in verse 6, he says to them, he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of this age or the ruler of this age who are doomed to pass away. So, he's, he's speaking to them as if they were mature, but he's saying, look, I, I, I want to speak to you as mature, but I'm not sure where you are in your maturity. Well, in chapter 2, verse 16, He says, we have the mind of Christ. 
And so he's saying to them, hey, stop acting as if you are people of this world. Stop acting as if you are, um, stop acting like a child. You know, you're mature, but right now you're not showing that you're mature. And so, Paul speaking somewhat um, tongue-in-cheek at the same time here as he's speaking to them. Paul says he could not address them as spiritual people, that is being mature, but people of the flesh, but yet infants in Christ. Now, the King James translates the word flesh here as carnal, carnal. And that has created all kinds of confusion at times because the word carnal, when the 1611 was translated, is not the same meaning that we hold and use today. The word carnal often has the idea of of sexual sin or immorality, or the word is often used, you've heard of carnality. But the word carnal here is actually, when it was written in the 1611, was translated and had a closer identity with the idea of flesh or of, of meat or basic flesh, like you're just acting like a human being without God's Spirit influencing your hearts. So, on the one hand, Paul's calling them brothers in verse 1. He calls them brothers. He also feels like he can't really address them that way because, because they're not acting as if they are filled with spirits. So, in verse 2, he, he describes them as spiritually immature, as needing milk, And the things that Paul has been writing to them, verse 2, it says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready for it. Well, what we've been reading through the first couple chapters of Corinthians, Paul's been, been teaching milk. Now, some of us might have read some of this and thought to ourselves, man, that's hard. And maybe hearing it was hard to understand. But Paul is saying, look, this is the very basic message, the milk of the cross. If you're not able to handle the milk of the cross, there's there's deficiency in your capacity to live out the Christian life. You're not mature. You're not able to handle the truths of the cross. And so, Paul arrives at this conclusion. How? How? Because he says in verse 3, look, there's strife among you. I mean, like, you're not applying the humility of the cross here. You're trying to puff yourself up, and it's creating all kinds of division in the life of the church. And so, Paul is saying here, look, this jealousy and this strife is evidence that you're not applying the cross to your life. And those are two manifestations of an anti-cross pride. On Friday night, we heard a message about pride, and it was a great message about pride. But manifestations of that look so… there's so many different manifestations of pride. He highlights two of them, jealousy and strife. Jealousy is the attitude, and strife is the action that comes out of it. And they're very destructive. particularly for a church. We tend to think that immorality can destroy a church, 
But funny enough, Paul doesn't just start with immorality as the big central issue that he leads off with. He actually starts with addressing jealousy and strife. That's stuff that will always destroy a church. And jealousy is a severe form of selfishness. It's a, it's a begrudging of somebody else what we really wish that we had for ourselves. It's one of the most obvious characteristics of babyhood. It's typical to see young children be so self-centered and they want what the other person has, but they can't have it. That's typical in a child, but it's not should not be typical in an, in an adult. And then what comes out of that jealousy is a divisiveness, and that's what immature people do if they've not really applied the cross to their lives and Stop looking at themselves more highly than they ought to. What happens in your home when selfishness develops? I mean, we see it so frequently, maybe we become immune to it. But when selfishness and jealousy occurs, it destroys, and it's he said and she said, and there's strife. And, and when a congregation develops loyalties around individuals in situations like this, it's a sure symptom of a, an immaturity of the heart. Certainly, people can work well together, and there's some people that can work well together and better than working with other people. But if there are pockets of people who can only tolerate a few kinds of people, then, man, we have got trouble. You know, it seems at times that, uh, you know, you can, I don't know how you can, but sometimes people can avoid politics in life. And what politics is simply is this promotion of an agenda, the, the promotion of a viewpoint and a perspective. Politics is how the world gets things done, but it has no place in a church. Politics is carnality, but humility is genuine spirituality. Paul in this text is not suggesting that there is a third category of a believer, as if someone could be an indefinite carnal Christian all of their life. Paul is actually not talking about that kind of a person. He's actually addressing people who come week in, week out, who, who, who perhaps even serve in leadership, but they engage in church politics. Paul says in verse 4, when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Paulus, are you not merely being human? It's a fleshly wisdom that displays itself in strife. And sometimes it manifests itself in these ways. I, don't force me to fellowship with people I don't know. I only talk with people I know. Oh, I only give to missions. Oh, I'm not into missions. Hello? Like, what is the church? Are we not all on mission? 
When things are not going the way I want them to go, then I sit in the corner and pout. I'm the squeaky wheel. People come to me because they know I can get things done in the church. She doesn't organize the events the way that I do, so I won't help in any way. That kind of stuff is strife and jealousy, and it doesn't belong in a church. The wisdom that comes from the cross says this, let love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. We're going to put this into practice a little bit. On Monday evening at our business meeting, before we even go into any of the regular business, after we've read our church covenant, what we're going to do is we're going to just take a moment and give thanks for ministries that we're not directly involved in to which we find ourselves being blessed. Short little testimonies of how others in the church are serving and blessing me. That's exciting. I want to see more of that. I want to see us being molded by the wisdom of the cross and not the wisdom of this world. And so, Paul is saying, look, these characteristics demonstrate an, an immaturity that is unacceptable. And in the following verses, in 5 through 17, I'm going to move a little bit quicker now, but he's going to highlight two important principles for Christian leadership. Two important illustrations follow with each of these, these principles. And so, He's it's showing us how important it is for us not to engage in politics in the church. And when we fail to, we, we, we can downplay these, these truths. And if we suppress these truths that he's going to tell us, we can run into real problems. And the first is that Christian leaders are in partnership to make much of Christ. Verses 5 through 9. We read this, just I'll read it again for our remembrance here. It says, when, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. So he has an agriculture, a farming illustration here. And think of a large farm. There's some large farms in Wayne County. There's not as many as there used to be. I know that. But some of the large farms require more than just one farmer. They, they require several farmers in partnership to make the thing happen. And in family farms, you know, it was everybody pitching in. Well, in Paul's thinking, he's thinking of thousands and thousands of acres like a plantation. And if you think about it, that's truly how God's kingdom works. It's bigger than ourselves. And Paul is saying, look, it doesn't make sense to throw heaping praise upon the person who sows as if they're the ones who make the difference. 
And he's saying, look, you, you don't want to heap praise upon the person who, who is, um, you know, maybe tilling the soil and the person who's watering it. In the end, if God doesn't infuse it with life, it doesn't matter. It's actually, ultimately, God who brings the increase. And furthermore, the Lord has assigned to each one the task, and we're all in partnership together for the common cause of lifting the name of Jesus Christ. If there's any growth in this ministry that we call the tabernacle, it will not be the result of me. It will not be the result of you. It's going to be the Holy Spirit through broken and contrite hearts And that's where the growth is going to come from. But if we're all broken, if we're all humble, look out. God can do some really great things. Now, Christian leaders like myself, I'm a Christian leader, a pastor. The men who serve on the elder board are also leaders. Deacons are leaders as well. None of us should be fawned over in such a way that we become puffed up in pride. And so we want to make sure that we're not creating circles of influence where we become jealous of what's happening over there and what's happening here. We need to avoid all that kind of one-upmanship and the potential for how that could destroy a church. If we're not careful, if we make an allegiance to one person so primary, so important, what we do is we turn them into a God. And it's not about them. It's about the cross of Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, we can be thankful for people who have helped us. There are a lot of people who, honestly, if we look at our lives, there's been a lot of people who have helped us through life. And thank God for them. But this is important for me to hear, too. Leaders are to partner to make much of Christ. There should be no private kingdoms in the church. Job ownership can be an excuse for kingdom making. In fact, all of our leaders need to be able to receive input from one another. And if we're not willing to hear constructive input from one another, then there's a good chance that we're being formed by pride and not by the cross. That's the first principle. We're really just in partnership with one another. The second principle here in verses 10 to 17 is that Christian leaders are directly accountable to Christ Himself. The analogy of farming changes to building, but the message is still about the church but it shifts more towards the accountability side of, of receiving the wages and, and, and the reward that's going to come out of it. So let's read verse 10. It says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, 
for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, Paul's picking up on the accountability of leaders theme now and, and, and the idea of reward. He says that Christ is that solid foundation that's been laid. It's been laid. It's been constructed. It's what the church rests upon. Now, buildings are very quickly assembled today. So, you have to have a little bit of a patience to understand what Paul is referring to. I mean, it's very quick. We could put up a building within like a couple of months. Sometimes even within a month, a building can go up. But when Paul is talking from his vantage point, a temple that was like a public edifice, a public building, could take decades to build. In fact, the person who designed it could have actually died and another committee come and take over and put the other blocks in place. He's talking about a big project here. And this is where Paul is going here, the potential for people coming afterwards to design it according to their whims, their own vision, their own ideas, and neglect the foundation of Christ. And Paul is saying, look, the gold, the silver, the precious stones are that which models and mirrors the cross. That which is self-serving and designed to create an edifice around yourself is going to be the wood, the hay, and the straw. And so, verse 12 is simply a contrast of the wisdom of this world versus the wisdom of the cross. That self-centeredness is the wisdom of the world. That's the wood, the hay, and the straw. That self-abasement is the wisdom of the cross, the precious stones. So, Paul is saying, look, the pattern of humility glorifies the one who laid the foundation, which is Christ. In the final analysis, God is going to make much of Christ no matter what. So, when the fire comes and it burns everything away, what's going to stand in the day of judgment is Christ and only Christ. In the day, the day of judgment, God is going to hold Christian leaders accountable for how they have labored in the church. He's going to hold me accountable. He's going to hold elders accountable. He's going to hold deacons accountable for how they have led in the church. This passage has been used at times to justify three wrong ideas. The first is the idea of purgatory. The fire that Paul is speaking here does not torment the builders. It actually refines the work. It's the means of revealing the kind of work that has been produced. It's the, and, and, and the idea of running out of the building is actually the idea of being, you know, escaping as if by fire. It's like you, you escape by the skin of your teeth, you've run out of the building, and now you're looking on the building and you're seeing what's left. 
That's how the analogy is supposed to be understood. How much of their work has survived the fire? And so Paul is addressing people like myself, the elders, former pastors, different groups that come in to minister in our church. We're all in the field. We're all in the building. We're farming or we're building. But the ultimate thing is Christ. A second wrong idea that that has surfaced at times is the idea of that perpetual carnal Christian. This, This passage has nothing to do with just making it into heaven by the skin of a prayer when you were three or four. Paul's not talking about a person who has made a profession of faith and then returns to a lifestyle of like indistinction from the world. He's referring to not the ordinary folks here, but to the leaders. Are we making our own kingdom, or are we laying down our lives for the sake of Christ? There's a third idea here that's wrong. It's a wrong application. The idea of an individualistic Christianity. In no way is Paul talking about how I build my own Christian life on Christ. As if one day God will reveal what I have been building. And at times it becomes an excuse to say, well, look, you know, at the day of fire, you know, who are you to judge me? It's what I'm building in my life. And that, perpetu- that perpetuates an arrogance and a mindset that is actually contrary to the cross. This is not what he is saying at all. Paul is saying, look, by the farming analogy, by the building, we're all, as Christian leaders, servants in the gospel work. And God cares for his church, and he's going to hold leaders accountable for how they build the body. Now you're thinking, well, thank you, so what does this have to do with me in the pew? Well, you might not be an official leader in the church, but you're a leader. You don't have to hold office to lead people. Verse 16 to 17 actually gets a little bit more personal to the pew, though. Because in verse 16 and 17, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul gets down to the brick and mortar. Yeah, you are a brick in the wall, someone said. If you've got the King James Bible in your hand, you've got a little bit of advantage on the rest of us here. Because if you see the word ye, the word ye, and we don't talk in ye and thee anymore, but the word ye is almost equivalent to y'all. It's a plural you. And Paul's getting down now to that brick and that mortar. And the church, as Jim said this morning, It's not the building. It's the people. It's the people. And Paul warns each person in this room not to become an accessory to division. Beware. 
if anyone destroys. In the King James, it's the word defile. But it's the same word as destroy at the end of that verse. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy you. Divisiveness can come in many, many different ways. Heresy will definitely do it. But taking your eyes off the cross and letting other more peripheral matters dominate the agenda will also do it too. In fact, it will probably do it in a grander way. It's just as effective. I mean, we can build superficiality of of conversions within our congregation, and we can build wonderful programs. But you know what eventually this church is going to be full of? Full of immaturity. Full of gossip. Full of prayerlessness, bitterness, biblical illiteracy. Self-promotion, materialism. And any one of these things can create a divisiveness within a congregation. And God will destroy those who destroy his church. How will he do that? I don't know. But I know this, that it is fearful to fall into the hands of an angry God. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a holy God. God is so holy, he's dangerous. You couldn't enter into the holy of holies without dying immediately. Now, in this particular text, I believe that Paul is threatening with eternal damnation. How horrible would it be to realize one day that we are actually a child of Satan doing his bidding, receiving our reward in hell? That would be scary. I believe that Paul is essentially saying, by their fruit you shall know them. But that we would have open eyes to see if we are not possibly participating against Christ than for Christ. It's a strong message, I know. We need to hear messages like this at times. I need to hear them. But what Paul is getting at here in his argumentation, he's saying that to follow Christ means that we are going to become shaped by the humility of His cross. We will be learning the pattern of denying ourselves. And if you think I've learned this completely, you're wrong. I am still learning this. And there have been times where I personally haven't looked like the cross. But boy, do I want to start, I want to look like the cross. A truly spiritual person will become an instrument of unity in the church rather than an instrument of division in the church. No one, no matter how charismatic their personality ought to become a prima donna. Do you know what a prima donna is? 
It's the soprano who sings in the choir that has to be noticed by everyone else. They stick out. They don't blend in. Following Christ means following Christ to the cross. Spiritual leaders who are truly spiritual leaders will always lead people to the cross and the gospel. Not into a deeper confidence and collaboration with them, but they will be pointing people to Christ and only Christ. A spiritual leader is not self-confident. They're not confident in themselves. They're confident in Christ. They know their heart. They know that they're They're simply broken and weak, and they feel that inadequacy. They have lower estimates of their own abilities. A spiritual leader will take input. They will participate in the team. They'll work hard to promote the vision and ministry of others in the church. How does that happen? Well, it happens through a devotion, a deep meditation on the cross, a willingness to go to the milk, but then grow with it. Are we being formed by the wisdom of the cross or by the wisdom of this world? Are we promoting ourselves or promoting Christ? Are we an instrument of division in the church? Or are we an instrument of unity in the church? Close with Jesus' words. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loves his life for my sake will save it. It's the way of the cross. Let's keep looking at the cross. Let's be formed by the cross.